Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. As promised, we are back to talk about the next movie in the Terminator franchise. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. That's right. Summer blockbusters abound. We hope you enjoyed our first episode, or, you know, last week's episode at least on the Terminator franchise with the Terminator. With some fascinating uh, production details and only to be outdone by this episode, hopefully. Yeah, as a fair warning, when we get into some of the like history about this movie, there's a lot of numbers being thrown at you. But I promise, like it's it's important information. So yeah, like the number two, mm-hmm, exactly right. The most important number discussed in this conversation. <laughs> Speaking of which, Terminator Two: Judgment Day, sometimes stylized as T Two is a 1991 American science fiction action film produced and directed by James Cameron, who co-wrote the script with William Wisher. It's a sequel to the 1984 film The Terminator that we covered last week, obviously, as well as the second installment in the Terminator franchise overall. The film stars Arnold Schwarzenegger again, Linda Hamilton again, Robert Patrick, and Edward Furlong. Also returning from the first film is Brad Fidel, who composed the music. The film follows Sarah Connor and her 10-year-old son, John, as they're pursued by a new, more advanced Terminator. The liquid metal shape-shifting T-1000 sent back in time to kill John, while a second, less advanced machine is also sent back to protect him. Hmm. While talk of a follow-up film arose following the original's release, its production was stalled due to technical limitations, a vital aspect of the film. Its release saw a breakthrough in CGI imagery, including the first use of natural human motion for a CGI character, and the first partially computer-generated main character. At the time of its release, T2 was the most expensive film ever made, over three and a half times the average cost, coming in at a budget of $100 million, which was 15 times higher than the original's budget. Hasta la vista, listeners. This is Terminator 2. Taken at the West Highland Police Station, 1984. You were there. Same model. These were taken today. You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. Once, he was programmed to destroy the future. What it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission, get down, is to protect it. Ah! Come with me if you want to live. You're really real. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy. He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. Is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. You just can't go around killing people. Why? If you thought you had seen it all. Again. Stay down! Go! Now! We gotta stick together! Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. 
This time, he's back. For good. Trust me. In 1995, 11 years after the first showdown, a teenage John Connor, played by Edward Furlong, is living in Los Angeles with his foster family. His mother, Sarah, played by Linda Hamilton, is imprisoned in a mental institution after attempting to blow up a computer factory. Before this, she had been preparing John throughout his childhood for his role as a human resistance leader against Skynet, the artificial intelligence that will be given control of U.S. nuclear missiles and will initiate a nuclear holocaust, which will become known as Judgment Day. Skynet has sent another Terminator, this time a T-1000, played by Robert Patrick, back to 1995 to kill John Connor. This model is an advanced prototype made of liquid metal called mimetic polyalloy that allows it to transform into almost anything and to transform its arms into blades or other shapes at will. Upon arriving, the T-1000 kills a police officer and assumes his identity, using the police computer to track down John. In the future, John Connor also sends a reprogrammed Model 101 Terminator, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, back to 1995 to protect his younger self. The young John Connor has become quite the delinquent, disobeying his foster family and using computers to steal money from ATMs and more. He's out spending his stolen money at a shopping mall where both the Terminator and the T-1000 track him down. There's a kerfuffle in a video arcade between both cyborgs, but John manages to escape on his moped and drives along a drainage canal until the T-1000 in a stolen big rig truck slams through the barrier of an overpass into the canal to chase him. The Terminator arrives and rescues John and the two flee on a motorcycle. John and the Terminator stop in a parking lot, once safe, and the Terminator explains the situation to him. Worried for his foster family, John calls them from a payphone, but gets suspicious when his foster mother, played by Jeanette Goldstein, acts much nicer than usual, and the dog continuously barks. The Terminator learns that his family has been killed after mimicking John's voice and fooling the T-1000 into incorrectly saying the dog's name. John learns that the Terminator must obey his commands, and he orders him not to kill anyone, and to help rescue his mother from the mental institution. They arrive as Sarah is attempting to escape herself, however the T-1000 is also there, mimicking various orderlies and guards. She's reluctant to accept help from the Terminator, but the trio eventually escape in a police car. The Terminator explains more of Skynet's history to Sarah and John, revealing that the man most likely responsible for Skynet's creation is Miles Dyson, played by Joe Morton, a Cyberdyne Systems engineer who is working on a revolutionary microprocessor that will form the basis for Skynet. Sarah gathers weapons from an old friend and plans to flee to Mexico with John, but a nightmare about Judgment Day prompts her to prevent it by instead killing Dyson. Finding him at home, she wounds him, but finds herself unable to kill him in front of his family. John and the Terminator arrive and inform Dyson of the future consequences of his work. They learn that much of his research has been reverse-engineered from the damaged CPU and right arm of the previous Terminator who attacked Sarah back in 1984. Convincing him that these items and his designs must be destroyed, they break into the Cyberdyne building, retrieve the CPU and the arm, and set explosives to destroy Dyson's lab. Though the police shoot and fatally wound Dyson when they storm the lab, he successfully detonates the explosive and he dies. The T-1000 pursues the surviving trio, eventually cornering them in a steel mill. The T-1000 and Model 101 fight, and the more advanced model seriously damages and shuts down the Terminator. However, unbeknownst to the T-1000, the Model 101 brings itself back online using an alternate power source. 
Sarah's shotgun blast failed to knock the T-1000 into a vat of molten steel. As it is about to kill John, the Model 101 shoots it with a grenade launcher, knocking him into the steel where it melts. John tosses the arm and the CPU of the original Terminator into the vat as well, but the Model 101 explains that its own CPU must also be destroyed in order to ensure that Cyberdyne cannot use it to reverse engineer Skynet. Acting against John's tearful pleas and orders, the Model 101 says goodbye, has Sarah lower it into the vat because it cannot act to destroy itself, and gives a final thumbs up before submerging. Sarah drives down a highway at night with John, reflecting on her renewed hope for the future based on the Model 101's actions. The end? No, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sums it up, y'all. Terminator 2 was released on July 3rd, 1991 in 2200 theaters in the US and Canada and shattered records immediately. Its five-day opening gross topped 52 million, the second biggest opening of all time after 1989's Batman. It broke box office records in countries like the UK, Australia, and France. It was a definite smash, earning almost $206 million in North America, almost four times its opening weekend. Globally, the film would gross $520 million against a reported budget of $102 million, achieving a 434% increase in revenue as compared to its predecessor. An estimated 48,656,400 tickets were sold in North America alone. Terminator 2 holds a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 94%, and the site's consensus reads, T2 features thrilling action sequences and eye-popping visual effects, but what takes this sci-fi action landmark to the next level is its depth of the human and cyborg characters. CinemaScore reported that audience gave the film a rare A-plus rating. Hmm. Roger Ebert gave the film 3.5 out of 4 stars, saying Schwarzenegger's genius as a movie star is to find roles that build on rather than undermine his physical and vocal characteristics. Hal Hinston of the Washington Post was also very positive, writing, No one in the movies today can match James Cameron's talent for this type of hyperbolic big screen action. Cameron, hyperbolic. Yeah. <laughs> Call the hyperbole, please. Cameron doesn't just slam us over the head with the action. In staging the movie's gigantic set pieces, he has an eye for both grandeur and beauty. He possesses that rare director's gift for transforming the objects he shoots so that we see, for example, the lyrical muscularity of an 18-wheel truck. Sometimes a truck is just a truck, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Because of Cameron, the movie is the opposite of its Terminator character. It's a machine with a human heart. Aww. Aww. Richard Corls of Time was far less pleased. He called the film a humongous, visionary parable that intermittently enthralls and ultimately disappoints. T2 is half of a terrific movie. The wrong half. Well, I suppose it's better than Claptrap. <laughs> yes, what the other one called it. <laughs> a big piece of Claptrap. <laughs> oh my god. Well, Richard Close, look here. Um, it did receive accolades, actually, quite a few. Um, at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Cinematography and Best Editing. Uh, but it did win um, Academy Awards for Makeup, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound. Mm-hmm. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Robert Patrick, uh, Best Writing, and Best Makeup, but it won Best Science Fiction Film, Best Actress, Best Performance by a Younger Actor, Best Director, and Best Special Effects, of course. 
Much like its predecessor, Terminator 2 was given a lot of love from the AFI. In 2001, it was ranked at number 77 on the 100 Years 100 Thrills list. In 2003, it was listed as the number 48th greatest hero on 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains. Like we said from the last film, he's on both lists. The famous line, Asta Livista Baby, was ranked at number 76 on 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes. And in 2008, it was listed as the number 8 best science fiction film on AFI's top 10 list. Aside from AFI, Terminator 2 has been put on the a lot of best of lists by like Total Film, Empire, IGN, Playboy, etc. Et the film has been a mainstay in pop culture since its release. It has been referenced or parodied in movies and shows like Wayne's World, Last Action Hero, Hot Shots Part 2, The Simpsons, <laughs> Family Guy, American Dad, and The Lego Movie. The film was followed by four sequels, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, back in 2003, Terminator Salvation, back in 2009, Terminator Genesis, back in 2015, and finally, Terminator Dark Fate, just there in uh, 2019. The final sequel is actually a direct sequel to Terminator 2, creating a new timeline that's alternate to Terminator 3, thank God. (laughs) There was also a television series called Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, uh, that premiered in 2008, running for two seasons and starring Cersei Lannister, that bitch, played by (laughs) Lena (laughs) Headey. So I have not seen any Terminator movies since Terminator 2, and I have not seen a single episode of that series. I've, I've been told by many people that the series was very good. And I did see Terminator Dark Fate, um, and I saw all the sequels. Mm-hmm. Terminator Dark Fate is my favorite of, of the sequels besides Terminator 2. Um, and Cameron was involved in that, right? Oh, he, he produced it, yeah, yeah. But he still didn't direct it, you know. So it's it's good, but it's, you know, it's better than the other sequels in my opinion, but it's still nothing compared to the, the first two. I guess we'll talk about the movie a little bit, maybe. Maybe. I mean, otherwise it'd be a very short and boring episode filled with nothing but numbers. I mean, 434%. That's That's a lot of numbers. This movie made half a billion dollars and everyone's seen it. Well, guys, I think that about wraps up this episode. (laughs) Sweet dreams. Now let's talk about the movie. (laughs) Okay. So um, there's a lot. And uh, honestly, like normally I get stuff from, you know, anything from Wikipedia and IMDb to behind the scenes content, whatever I can get my hands on. This one's a little special. Recently I had the 30 year anniversary Jesus. Shriek, yes. And so um, this comes from an oral history of Terminator 2, or a lot of it does. Some of it does. So, And, and that, that was an article produced by The Ringer. Okay. Well, let me open up this beer before we start talking about it. Okay. So let's start our conversation by talking a little bit about the production. Yeah, I'm sure it's pretty storied. Yeah. I mean, after the success of the original, I mean, talk of the sequel started pretty soon, but Obviously, like you mentioned before, several outstanding issues stood in the way. First, the technology uh, limitations to showing like liquid metal on screen were not you know, non-existent, and so the production of James Cameron's *The Abyss* and its associated water creature effect proved that the technology was actually ready. Oh my god, I forgot that he did that movie. Yeah, <laughs> and we have an do episode you- on that over on Patreon. Yeah, we do. We do. Like about a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the second problem was that there were property right disputes between Hemdell Film Corporation for the first one and Corelco Pictures. So at the urging of Arnold himself, Corelco paid Hemdell $5 million for the franchise in 1990, resolving the issue. Wow, I bet I bet they wish they sold it for more. <laughs> I know, but they're fucking kicking themselves now. They're like, five million suckers. Ha ha ha. And that's, like, a, that's a third of what Arnold was paid to do the second one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at me now. Yeah. <laughs> God. 
But strangely enough, like magic, James Cameron, Arnold, and Linda Hamilton were all ready at that point to proceed. As soon as that deal went through, they all happened to be ready to go. And so James Cameron already had the basic idea of the story uh, in his head from the first one, and it took only six weeks for him to finish the working draft of the script that was sent out to the cast and the crew. The quick turnaround time actually enabled the film to be released less than a year later for a 1991 4th of July release, even with principal photography taking nearly six months to complete, with some reports saying eight months. So um, it is like magic that all three of them were ready to go like at the right time, right? Almost like kismet, you know? And I know that Cameron was making movies and Arnold was making movies. I don't remember a lot of Linda Hamilton from that time period. I think they were all available. She she was just wrapping up a film down south. I forget what that was. Certainly wasn't Dante's Peak yet. No. Um, <laughs> and I but, think Beauty uh, and the Beast was finished by that point, right? Yeah, I would assume. So, yeah. Well, yeah. It's kind of, I mean, it is like Kismet, so that's good. Yeah. So, obviously, J- James Cameron had to go around and calling everyone to see if they were up for it, right? And so, um, Arnold was actually called first and asked if he was interested. All, <laughs> all Arnold said was, just make me cool. <laughs> <laughs> and he ended up being paid uh with a 15 million dollar gulfstream business jet slightly used <laughs> he got a plane that was his payment yeah, that was his payment <laughs> so as i can tell yeah i mean that's pretty impressive but when he first read the script he had a big problem with it because he was the terminator and he couldn't he didn't kill anyone in the script so they were on a plane flight together and by the time they landed arnold got his head around it and agreed that if they could pull it off it would be huge huge um yeah i mean i don't we'll get into this later on you know what i mean but i kind of think that his his first impression of not being cool because he's not killing people is completely right. so i'm glad yeah he around it. well if he's, he's talking about the terminator and the first film you know and he hadn't read the the drafted script yet and all this happened so fast he probably didn't get the elevator pitch yeah you know and so he he really had to bring his head around that because he's going into this thinking he's coming back as a villain right and some of the studios and even the first uh, ideas of it if the technology couldn't be done were about him basically fighting his twin that there was in two back and it would just be arnold fighting arnold oh oh <laughs> <laughs> that's too much so, arnold yeah so linda hamilton returned for one million uh which she had problems with later on when she found out what everyone was paid and she trained for months and months before doing uh, and during the shoot and her uh actually her twin sister makes a cameo in a in some deleted scenes really yeah there's a shot where um she's working on the terminator like pulling out the bullets from the terminator that's in the in the movie but there's a kind of an extended shot of her doing some minor surgery on him i think mm-hmm. and there's a mirror shot and so it's actually um a prosthetic that she's working on because you can't possibly do surgery on a real human, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and something that's supposed to look like a mirror, but it's actually a window with the real Linda Hamilton working behind it. So it's like a, a fake reflection shot and it really works. I've seen the deleted scene. You wouldn't ever think that it's not a reflection, but it's actually her twin working on Arnold's back or whatever. And then seeing the mirror and then talking. Oh my God. That's so neat. Yeah. <laughs> But James Cameron Uh, called her and asked if she was interested and that uh, he actually wouldn't do the film if she didn't agree. And so she said, yeah, in principle, I'm in, but I want to be crazy. And he said, well, what do you mean crazy? How crazy? And then she said, crazy, like I've been driven crazy. (laughs) And he said, like, you're an insane asylum, like you're institutionalized. And she said, yeah, sure. Let me play crazy. Let me go nuts. And he said, all right, well, you're going to get my my version of nuts. And she said, all right, I'm down. 
<laughs> God, I hope that's verbatim. Um, <laughs> so Arnold Schwarzenegger just wants to be cool, right? It's his one caveat. And Linda just wants to be fucking crazy. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> also, $1 million as compared to a jet. That really is kind of a slap in the face. Especially considering all the work that she did, Arnold later said that she even inspired him to train harder. And he was quoted to say, it really was one of the most amazing transformations all around he's ever seen in his 40 something years of acting. Really? Yeah. I really do like Linda Hamilton in this franchise, right? I think that in both movies, she's really good. I think she really carries a lot of it, right? And so, like, I really expected her paycheck to be a hell of a lot more than just a million dollars. I mean, I hope that. I hope that she got maybe some like residuals and things like that from it. And I hope that she's still banking on this movie, but I mean, like she earned it, you know? Yeah, she did, you know, and he did actually go back and, and he tried to do the same thing that he did for Sigourney, which was, you know, really try and, and kind of petition for Oscar buzz. Right. Mm -hmm. And Sigourney did get her nomination, but he, he, for some reason, Linda Hamilton was not nominated for her role here. And I mean, like as far as the like the the Academy Award nominations that it's got, I see that they're all very technical, and this is a very technical movie, right? And while the acting in this movie is good, you know, I don't know that it's like Sigourney level good from Aliens, you know. So, I, my only hope is that later on, when Linda Hamilton showed up to make Dark Fate, is that what it's called? Yeah, that someone drove a dump truck full of money to her lawn like they did for Sigourney Reaver and <laughs> yeah I don't know I, I, I'm sure she was paid more than a million I can tell you that but yeah. at that point in her career it just wasn't anything like Arnold's right he had already he had just completed kindergarten cop and, and some other things you know so his his career really took off in a way that hers didn't she was on TV and he was a big movie star yeah. right so it, they kind of went different directions but honestly that's you know Still a lot for especially the, you know, 1990, 1991. But as far as like Robert Patrick said, Cameron stated that he wanted to find someone who would be a good contrast to Arnold. So if the 800 series is a kind of human panzer tank, then the 1000 series had to be a Porsche. Ooh, that's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah. So like I said earlier, it was spitball that the two Terminators sent back would be actually be two versions of Arnold. But James Cameron felt strongly about the technical challenge of liquid metal and also thought that Arnold versus Arnold would be boring. And the which Arnold is which question would potentially annoy audiences. Of course, that reminded me of David and Walter from Alien Covenant. Yeah, but I mean, like in, in that movie, it's, it's kind of a lot more not- nuanced. They're intelligent conversational beings compared to Arnold. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's like subtle in that movie, but they don't really beat you over the head with it. But in this movie, with as much action that's going on, and it's really dependent on, you know, some like, like good filler dialogue to move the story and shit, like it just wouldn't work. And it would be boring, I feel. Comparatively to what we have, I can't imagine a better movie or different way to tell it than it was and how it all came together. So uh, Cameron actually originally wanted Billy Idol (laughs) for the role, but... uh, Billy Idol had actually a bad car crash and was taken off the list because of that. Oh, I don't want to laugh at that, but Billy Idol in this movie will not be good. That doesn't even make any sense to me. So when Robert Patrick finally did his screen test, the entire room went quiet because he became someone else right before their eyes and even had a different walk. He got the part immediately after that screen test and Cameron later said he just emerged. There was a moment where there was Robert and then there was everybody else in the room. 
So yeah, let's talk about Robert Patrick for just a minute. I think that he does an amazing job in this movie, right? And I mean, he doesn't say a lot, but he has a lot of fucking presence, you know? And I think this is the first movie that I really remember him from. I don't know what his career is like, you know, before this, but mm-hmm. um, I remember seeing him in a lot of things after Terminator 2. So I, he obviously like caught the public's eye. Right. Yeah, definitely. And he made cameos even like in Last Action Hero with Arnold. Mm-hmm. He made a cameo as the T-1000. And then uh, a couple of other things. He was also in X-Files later on in the later seasons. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. I remember like when, when David Duchovny left X-Files, he sort of stepped into that, that mm-hmm. role. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he had, a, he had a long career. He's still working. Right. Yeah. I just I really enjoyed him as a villain in this movie. I thought it's just very, very neat. And him just as, as an actor, I think is, is good. Yeah. So we have to talk about Edward Furlong. Do we? We do. (laughs) Which I thought he did a fine job, you know, for a child actor. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So James Cameron said, we looked at all the boys of that age that were coming up and they were either overexposed in the wrong context or there were these little smiling machines that were being churned out by the advertising industry. Yeah, that's true. And so he was actually discovered after seeing like hundreds of people, uh, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of boys. He was discovered by the casting director, Molly Finn, while visiting the Pasadena Boys and Girls Club. <laughs> she was just she went to, out into the wild to, to find the, the boy. Okay. And um, he says he noticed an older lady crossing the street to come talk to him. And the first thing he said to her was, what do you want, frog lips? <laughs> and she said, I like you. Want to be in a movie? (laughs) Has it never happened to me? Maybe I should start being rude to people. (laughs) Now I have to see a picture of this woman. I think I need to see what her lips look like. So Arnold was later stated as saying, I felt like it was up to me to kind of make him my friend rather than being his mentor. I just started playing games with him, hanging out with him so that when we eventually started doing the scenes together, he was not any different. And then according to Cameron, he totally glommed onto Arnold as a father figure and Arnold loved Eddie and, and loved torturing him, jumping him through his hoops, making him do push-ups and all that. Come on, Eddie, don't be so lazy. You've got to get fit. You've got to get fit. <laughs> get to the chopper. You did such a good Arnold. So at the premiere, um, Furlong said that he remembered asking his buddy, dude, I need to show up at the premiere with a chick. What should I do? And then they were like, you should get a hold of Punky Brewster, man. And he was like, yeah. And so he reached out to Salome and Fry and was like, hey, will you go on this date with me to this movie? And then they became friends. Oh, what a good story. So he took Punky fucking Brewster to the (laughs) premiere. Okay, so... 1991 was like prime age for me to like really pay attention to like young film actors right i mean obviously i wasn't like out of the closet or anything but i clearly knew i was gay edward furlong was all over the cover of things like tiger beat and bop or whatever the fuck those magazines were called you know what i mean so like everybody in the world loved him after this movie yeah i just don't remember much of a career after that i I remember him in one of the crow sequels he became the crow in like crow three or four or something. So I didn't know that with like, David Boreanaz as the bad guy. I, he's in pet cemetery two, you know, but that's really all that I remember him from like Terminator yeah. two and pet cemetery two. He just like does sequels and that's it. So now that we've kind of rounded out the, the story of how the cast kind of got involved, um, we can talk a little bit about the special and visual effects. There was only a handful really. Yeah, I mean, actually you're not wrong. Oh, what? Really? <laughs> as far as the special effects, yeah. So, like, sorry, as far as the visual effects, right? So, the special effects, obviously, this is chock full yeah. of effects of some kind. 
But James Cameron had always wanted a villain, just like we mentioned last week. He always wanted a villain made out of liquid metal and wanted to give audiences something they'd never seen before, as you know he often does. And by the time he was done, he'd created one of the 20th century cinema's greatest holy shit moments. For sure. I mean, I was floored as a kid. I thought it was just like one of the neatest things I've ever seen, right? Oh, same. And I mean, I... I don't remember having seen The Abyss before I saw Terminator 2. I think I saw that much later on, right? And so, like, that sort of, like, liquid creature, right, in comparison, sort of, like, paled, right, to everything that we see on screen in Terminator 2. Well, now it has to be reflective in a way that the water wasn't. Right. And so, I mean, it was just so fucking neat. Yeah. And I mean, I remember watching this movie in the theater and like I, I went with my cousin and my little brother, like he was old enough to get us into an R-rated movie and they had oversold the theater. So we watched it standing up in the back, which I mean, like must have been some sort of like fire hazard really, but <laughs> there were people just standing all in the back rows, just standing oh, wow. around. We watching the entire movie and everyone just had such a good time. And I remember just like the feeling in that room when you got to see exactly like what this character can really do throughout moments in this movie. And it was just so special. Oh, wow. I really wish I'd seen that in the theater. It was amazing. I, I, I remember it like vividly. It was widely seen as the most ambitious CGI undertaking since Tron or even The Last Starfighter. The creation of the visual effects cost $5 million and took 35 people, including animators, computer scientists, technicians, and artists, 10 months to produce for a total of 25 man years for a total of only five minutes of CGI runtime. What? <laughs> the only CGI is that liquid metal. And other times you can see that it's prosthetics that they've done you know that you know that make it look more realistic because he chooses the shots wisely you know as far as what is cgi and what is in camera like the the shots on his chest you know were pretty much just like squibs and then like tinfoil you know what i mean right (laughs) you know so it kind of works and then like the the thing that he turns into at the end is pretty much prosthetic in camera you know animatronics from stan winston that's so amazing too because it looks seamless Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just so good, really. And I am sort of like flabbergasted by that. I, I kind of felt like there was more CGI than than like in camera effects. Yeah, but, I was I mean, shocked obviously. to see that runtime of only five minutes for 25 man years of work of work time to do that. 25 man years. <laughs> <laughs> 25 woman years. But in some circumstances, the CGI still wasn't quite there yet. Like reflecting like the the pilot's face when he breaks into the helicopter is the liquid metal. You can see the reflection of the pilot's face in it, mm-hmm. you know, which is like reflections on top of that is, is pretty hard to do. And so in some circumstances, they had to go frame by frame in Photoshop to get some of those shots done as perfectly as possible. Well, I mean, if anyone is like has an eye for detail, it's James Cameron, yeah. right? So, I mean, of course, like his movies are going to turn out looking perfect, you know, come hell or high water. And I mean, it paid off. Like, really, that's I'm still like so flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah to me that's like one of the number one fun facts about this movie is that it's only five minutes of cgi time but stan winston would return to the puppet and the animatronics like we just mentioned and other in-camera effects which looked much better this time around yeah i would say that's that's true well like yeah. the metallic you know him ripping off his skin mm-hmm. you know and having the the metallic arm you know all the damage that would happen to uh, arnold's character like the different swords or whatever they would attach to the guy's hand and and later with jeanette goldstein as the stepmom you know all that stuff was in camera by stan winston and this just really really holds up oh i love that scene too 
where she, like, stabs the guy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's some good kills in this movie. But, you know, we're just past the 30th anniversary uh, for T2, and so to this day, some of the effects used are still looked at with amazement. Like, I I just watched um, the Corridor crew on YouTube talk about how unique and interesting that was they tried to re- recreate it and they still didn't make it look quite as good as it was when he goes through the bars when he's in the asylum you know because that was another kind of oh shit moment where he just kind of floats through those bars and comes right apart but it's the gun that sticks it's that kind of detail you know and so he has to kind of reposition it to, to go through the bars and so they tried to re- recreate that and they, they really couldn't do it quite you know with speed even with today's technology the way it was done yeah and you know it's been a while since i've seen this movie like i mean obviously like i said i saw it in the theater and then i probably watched it several times as a teenager but i really have not watched it since i have been in my 20s or later so it's been quite a long time you know mm-hmm. even coming up on the 30th anniversary like i i don't know i i felt i feel like i should have seen this movie more times in my past but i haven't and mm-hmm. so like a lot of these things were a surprise like i didn't remember a lot of it well, even the ILM visual effects supervisor goes back and, and talks about how his surprise at the near immunity to aging the effects has in this movie. And that's true. I mean, like, it looks just as good as it did, you know, back when I was a kid. Like, I'm still sort of yeah. floored by all these effects in this movie. With some exceptions. And, yeah, but very few. Okay, yeah. I, I think that, like, looking back at our episode on The Terminator last week, I think I had more problems with the effects than I do in this one. I think this one sort of, like, stands the test of time a little bit, yeah. you know? in a way that that one doesn't, um, you know, and I'm sure that we'll talk about differences between the movies, but I mean, obviously if we're talking about effects right now, that's like the biggest one for me. Right? Well, yeah, their CGI budget was, was almost as high as the entire budget for the first movie. <laughs> that's right. So, I mean, they clearly had some money to spend and they spent it wisely. Yeah. And obviously it went on to win the 1992 Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Well-deserved. And, of course, Brad Fidel came back to do the music, this time with more orchestra. And the soundtrack actually went on to spend six weeks on the Billboard 200, peaking at number 70, strangely What? Enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. And in the 2010 DVD commentary, he said that the recurring metallic clanging sounds, like at the beginning of the main theme and the, and the credits, were produced by hitting a cast iron frying pan with a hammer. <laughs> I can do that in my kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> da, 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 da. We can make a score right now. Yeah, we can. <laughs> That's all you need. So let's uh, let's talk about the movie itself a little bit, shall we? Yes. I'm sure there's some moments in the movie we'd like to discuss. Yeah. Starting with uh, both Terminator's arrivals. One at a bar and one at kind of at the middle of the street and becomes a policeman. Yeah. Like an alley or something like that. Yeah. I mean, so obviously Arnold shows up again all naked and muscly, mm-hmm. right? Although a little bit hairier this time. So, a little light um, dusting there. A little dusting of chest hair. Uh, but he goes into that bar and sort of like, you know, gets his clothes and his, his motorcycle, right? A different kind of chopper, one would say. Mm-hmm. And um, they play fucking Bad at the Bone. <laughs> yeah, I think as he <laughs> gets on the bike. It's a fun scene. And that's actually funny because uh, the studio said, like, for runtime, they want to make more money in theater. And that's one of like, the, that's the first thing they asked to go. And, of course, you know, Arnold and James Cameron refused to cut it. Well, no, you have to have that. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, because at that point, it's still a question as to whether or not he's good or bad. That's right. It's kind of, I don't know. I remember watching this scene and being like, I feel like there's a couple of people going to be in comas or really badly injured, if not dead in the scene. But it's kind of, I don't know. 
It could go either way. I mean, it's fun. I even like like the cheeky fucking music in the background. Like, Bad to the Bone's a fun song. And clearly, we're all expecting him to be a bad guy. Although, like, in the trailer, it really Yeah, I think you know? by that time, like, word of mouth for this would have said, like, the premise, you know, that he's a good guy this time around. I think that, I don't think anyone was super surprised by that. I had that theory last time we watched this, like, people might be in the dark. But for this one, I really don't think so. Yeah. Well, and then it just makes it irony, you yeah. know. So, which is which is good. I, but I, I like the opening to this movie. I think it's fun. Yeah, it's quick. It sets it up. The one with uh, with Arnold was fun, and then of course we get to to see the very well kind of put together one, you know, who just instantly kills a policeman, and you know that you know he's evil. You know, it's kind of a kick the dog moment. And he's also a lot more naturalistic this time around. Like he speaks in a normal accent. They got their shit together, and he can be actually expressive and emotive. When he's talking to people, say, that's a nice bike or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so then we we kind of make our way back to Sarah, you know, from the first movie. With last time we saw her, you know, she was on the road in Mexico and now she's in an institution. You know, we can kind of see how she's been treated and that she's not taking seriously that she has PTSD. Clearly, right? I mean, yeah. and she said she wanted to play nuts, right? So there I mean, she goes. She, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> she does. And she's jacked. Yes. My God. And I mean, she just like, she plays crazy really well in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like when she, she has like some of her like really like blank facial expressions, right? And comatose moments. Like, I think it's, it's really good, especially in some like really gross scenes later on. John's at the mall. He's just stolen some cash or whatever. We get kind of the premise of he's a foster kid. And yeah, I mean, I kind of get the idea that they're being a foster parent for like the money or whatever benefits come along with it. Right. But I mean, like they want him to like clean his room and, you know, go to school and whatnot, but I don't think they're trying very hard. Really. Yeah. Except that he's got that moped. I don't know if that was Sarah's leftover from the previous one, but I felt like there was more <laughs> than one in the garage. Anyway, whatever he takes his friend who like what that, that actor was like on Pete and Pete on, Nickelodeon later or something. What the hell's Pete and Pete? Oh my god! <laughs> you were only watching horror movies. You didn't watch any like kid shows back then. I missed it. You missed Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like you missed all that stuff. I know. Sad. But that that mall reveal of him kind of you know taking out the shotgun from like the rose mm-hmm. the rose box or whatever, and John was just like, oh shit, that's the Terminator, and everything kind of comes crashing down into reality, and that's where you get the first kind of reveal of both Terminators in that hallway. That's right, and I mean it's a really good like fight scene. And um, a good way to again reveal what like that other machine can do. But yeah, after the after the mall fight scene and his escape on that moped, and he's driving through that canal, right? Which I think they call the river in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I don't um, think that's Los Angeles. I think that was um, somewhere like San Fernando Valley or something like that, where they could do it. Um, no. Maybe it's supposed to be Los Angeles. I, I don't remember. Um, I think it's supposed to be, but yeah, that canal chases. That's one of those just oh shit moments where he ups the ante. We mentioned it in the last episode where that he cut like the the T one thousand you know is is after him in the big Mack truck, and the other one's trying to protect him on a motorcycle, and the Mack truck just like you know says fuck it and just like comes over the ledge and lands in the canal, and you're just like it's one of those oh shit <laughs> moments. It's just done a little bit like copy that word from that reviewer hyperbolic. That's just a little bit more surreal. Yeah, but I mean, I, again, I really like it. It's just like. When you say oh shit moment, that's that's a, a good way to describe it because I mean like people are cheering, they enjoy stuff like that, especially in an action movie when you take it to that like hyperbolic sense. Like it's, it's so much action and this movie is like filled to the brim with it. That's just really one of the very first times that we get to see it. Well, I almost right. feel like it's also like for action movies around that time, this could have served as a finale. JC. <laughs> <know>? Yeah. <laughs> But no, it's just like the very first big set piece. It is. Yeah, because there's more chase scenes and those are even bigger. 
right? Um, but you know, they they kind of escape, and he gets to know the Terminator, and he tells them the rules. You know, don't kill anyone, and you know, and he starts to re- to realize that he can order this Terminator around, and he has to follow his orders. And what I mean, like that's gonna be every like little boy's dreams, right? To like be able to like be in charge of a robot and shit so i mean like it's at this point in the movie where you start to get a little bit of heart involved in the action and they start to build that sort of like friendship which really has you know a good payoff toward the end of it as well as him with the sick realization that he's basically you know institutionalized his mother or was a part of it and that she's she was right all along and that she's been in that institution for however long he starts to feel real pangs of guilt and so the terminator tries to stop him and says that's the first place this guy's going to look for you mm-hmm. you know but they end up calling his step parents because he's worried about them you know and find out they're dead because the terminator takes over and, and john's voice on the phone conversation asks about wolfie <laughs> <laughs> what was the dog's real name uh i, I forgot but yeah. it was Wolfie was not the correct name, but Wolfie, of course, is the the German Shepherd from the first movie. That was James Cameron's dog. Yeah, I really enjoy that scene where uh, she's on the phone and like the arm comes out and like stabs the husband. Right? It's just it's so off nice. camera. Yeah, and you just hear the you know, and that's all. And then the, the camera slowly pans over, and the her knife sword or whatever is through his mouth and the milk carton, mm-hmm. and then finally like lets him go, and he falls to the ground. There's just like milk and blood everywhere. It's it's just such a classic moment. But yeah, so no, once they once they realize that his foster parents are dead, they he sort of orders him to go and help his mom escape from that asylum. Right? Yeah, but she's already kind of escaped herself. That's right. I mean, and she's already been told that, you know, photos were taken and she recognizes the Terminator from those photos. And, you know, she wants to go see her son. She needs to talk to him. And so she's trying to plan her escape. Yeah. And this is kind of the first time we also see the other Terminator being able to shapeshift into other people. He shapeshifts as a, as a guard. That's right. Because up until that moment, he was that cop, right? For, for yeah. almost all of it. He shapeshifts into the ground, like the tile that he stepped on. And then it, mm-hmm. he, he had already explained that he can only turn into things that he's touched. And so the cop had stepped on him, right? And you can see his kind of footprint or whatever. And then he turns into him. Yeah, and there's that that weird mirror moment where he's like standing like face to face with that guard, right? Yeah, and then he sticks his finger through his eye. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like I said, so many good kills in this movie for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, What what creeps me out the most in this movie, though, is when that orderly is in her room and like fucking licks her. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, I was really repulsed by that. I was like, this is just gross. It reminds me of that I'm Buck and I like to fuck moment from Kill Bill. <laughs> yeah oh back so yeah it was uh it was really nasty but i mean the escape is good because um you know the terminator has to give that that line right come with me if you want to live mm-hmm. and i mean it doesn't take her very long to sort of accept the situation yeah Obviously, but you can see is there. how panicked she is when she first sees him even with mm-hmm. him standing there next to the sun he she just has that that visceral reaction and can't even stand and just has to back up on her you know hands and knees essentially yeah she's completely traumatized for sure yeah right? and so he, he has to kind of like take her by the head <laughs> side of the head and just be like <laughs> it's okay it's okay and they escape so once once they've escaped and um you know the chase ensues right they make it to where sarah has like placed all of her like guns and ammo right yeah and so they arm up and it, this is kind of a bonding moment for the terminator and john and where she kind of sees that he's in in safe hands like this thing will never leave him. He's the, you know, 
her worst nightmare ends up being like the best protector he could ever have, essentially, and, and really a good father figure in a way. Watching John with the machine, it was suddenly so clear. The Terminator would never stop. It would never leave him. And it would never hurt him, never shout at him or get drunk and hit him or say it was too busy to spend time with him. It would always be there and it would die to protect him. Of all the would-be fathers who came and went over the years, this thing, this machine, was the only one who measured up. In an insane world, it was the sanest choice. They get a lot of, like, backstory from the Terminator as well about, like, Skynet's creation, like we said earlier, and she becomes fixated on Miles Dyson. Yeah, but isn't this also where she gets her dream? Yes. Oh, my God. Which is also, like, one of the best parts of this movie. Yeah. Right? She's watching herself (laughs) play with little John, baby John, I guess, in, like, a playground. And then the nuclear blast goes off. She's trying to warn them, but her voice isn't coming out. And then it shows the blast hit the fire blast hit and it essentially just like rips all the flesh from her bones as she's still screaming and it's just like really really visceral still good there's parts of the city scene kind of blowing up that don't really hold up in the effects as much but it still works really well thematically yeah some of the city scenes kind of look like models a little bit which they are. like her, yeah. yeah but uh you know her holding on to that chain link fence and by the end of it it's just her skeleton like so i holding on to it yes God, I mean, that's again something I remember like seeing in the theater. Going, like my mouth just like agape <laughs> at the entire thing. So neat. Yeah, and then she you know wakes up and basically they find that she's carved, you know, into the 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 picnic table or whatever she's sitting at. No fate, you know, and it's it's based on you know no fate but what we make of our own or whatever. And so they realize that she's gone after Miles Dyson, who she asked the Terminator, who's the one that's most directly responsible for Cyberdyne, and he and he answered it was Miles Dyson. He's like the lead engineer over there. And so she goes after him and goes to his home. Yeah, like full on sniper mode too. Like she's like just shooting shit up at his house. So Yeah, but it also establishes that he's he has a family and that he's not a bad guy. You know, and then she, when she realizes that she can't do it, and it's such a beautiful moment that she just realizes she like she can't, she can't do it at all. Yeah, I mean, because deep down she is a good person, and she's trying to save humanity, right? And even the thought of just killing one person to do that is something that's too much for her to do, right? Yeah, and John kind of reminds her, is like, yes, we can change the future, but not like this. We have to still be intact people, you know. It's true, right? And he kind of first shows his leadership in that way. By taking his mom yeah. out of that headspace. Yeah, I, th- I think around this point in the movie, you start to get an idea that once he realizes that everything his mom was saying is actually real, right? And that And everything that she had told him about his future or preparing him to, to be what he is to become, like he sort of is starting to step into that role already. Yeah. Right? And then we get this giant set piece of them actually going with Miles Dyson after they've convinced him. You know, and there's that big, like, you know, rip my flesh off and show you my arm, you know, scene, which is really cool. But he ends up going with them uh, essentially to kind of sacrifice himself to, to make sure this future doesn't exist and destroy the work that he's been working on for the last several years, you know. And so they kind of storm this building and it's a giant set piece and there's a lot of action here. And, you know, it's really, really well done. There's a lot of tension, especially having to do with Miles Dyson's ultimate sacrifice. Yes, because, um, you know, he, he's like riddled with bullets and holding that detonator, right? And he's like, I, I don't know how long I can hold on to this sort of thing, right? And he's like clearly dying. 
and such a good death scene too like really for real yeah and like explosions and cars and shit driving through windows and i mean it's just like it's so much but so good and fun to watch right i i'm not always the biggest fan of action movies sometimes i find them sort of mindless right but sometimes it's okay you know, just to have a lot of fucking action, a lot of things on fire. Yeah. Well, it was bringing the story forward because he was told, don't kill people, you know, but clear out the police. And they were like, how many police are here? And John's like, I think all of them, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and he's got all those weapons. And so he's like blowing up police cars and he's throwing out the the tear gas at them. And, you know, there's a there's a helicopter out there that saw his weapon and just kind of swerved out of the way. And, you know, they're they're just not prepared for that sort of thing. But. You know, lo and behold, the other Terminator has found them and will have hijacked a helicopter to pursue them as they escape. That's the scene where he sort of like, as liquid comes through the hole in the window, yeah, right? To take over the helicopter, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. So neat. Yeah. And so that's probably that's another yet yet another finale kind of action set piece is not only that building and that whole scene there, but also that helicopter chase scene because that is a real helicopter. That is going under the underpass and everything following that truck, you know? My God. Yeah. Did they, did they crash a helicopter into a truck? Like, I, don't, I don't know if the hel- they had to do multiple takes of the helicopter crash. So I think the helicopter crash itself was maybe a model or maybe it was a helicopter. Okay. I'm not sure. But um, I do know that the helicopter driving underneath the underpass and all of that to, to follow them in that close proximity was real. Well, I mean, it looks real, even if it was just a model in that explosion, like hitting the car. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I love it. So they actually end up like kind of crashing into a steel mill <laughs> with the liquid nitrogen, and that's yet another kind of false ending, kind of mirroring the first one, right? Because that's also really cool when it like breaks into a million pieces and starts to form back together. Yeah, because interestingly, I feel like this movie kind of mirrors the first one and kind of the plot points. It just kind of ups the ante at each stage. You know, like realizing her roommates were dead, realizing his stepmom was dead, you know, and this one, like the kind of the beats are kind of similar with the Terminator and Kyle Reese, you know, the false ending here, the the chases, a lot of the things happen, you know, even including like ending in a factory. Now we're ending in a steel mill. You know, it's kind of similar to how all this kind of thing is playing out to the first one. It's it's really kind of mimicking, you know, the plot, not the not the threads or the actual plot, but just the story beats, which is interesting to me. Yeah. So I I love that it, it, it one ups everything. And again, I think that it 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 does at the ending of this movie as well. Right. I feel like the original Terminator sort of ends with Sarah, like, you know, killing the robot. Right. And going off. But in this movie, they've already created a robot that has a little bit more of a heart, a little bit more of a human aspect to it and has created relationships with people. Right. And so I feel like it one ups itself again at the very end of this movie with sort of a bittersweet, heartwarming moment. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, Yeah. I mean, after that, that fight, I would say like, there's also a moment where, you know, the, the bad Terminator or whatever is pretending to be his mother and, you know, they have to go through all of that. And, and uh, you know, there's a, there's another false ending with the Terminator getting killed uh, to Arnold's Terminator actually. And he comes back to life, you know, and just to make that final blow and then has to sacrifice himself because the parts that they destroyed at Cyberdyne exist in his skull, you know, in his arm. And so they kind of have to, you know, he has to sacrifice himself against orders, you know, and, and says like, I know, I understand now why you cry, you know, cause that was a question that he asked John earlier is why, you know, are you damaged in some way? You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, you know, heavy handed kind of thing, but it feels good in the moment because it's, it's earned it at this point. Like you said, it ends really, really well. 
with him sacrificing himself because that's what has to happen really in the story to make it believable and give it kind of that foundation at the end to to really like that, that anchor of the story of ending it's really up to john and sarah who are now back together and can kind of you know start the future in their own way yeah because we've spent a lot of time getting to know you know the terminator schwarzenegger's terminator right and growing to love it you know as as opposed to hating it from the first one right or loving it as a villain but i mean it really does create like a little family unit and it's it's sacrifice at the end of the movie is incredibly touching i mean like i was fucking crying (laughs) while i was watching it so yeah i didn't cry but yeah i felt it but there's a lot of themes and i think thoughts around this movie that were kind of not shoehorned in but just included um obviously like we just mentioned the juxtaposition of warmth and spectacle is what elevates terminator 2 above nearly all the other 90s popcorn flicks and precious few massively budgeted vfx laden star-filled tentpole movies have been able to replicate the alchemy here yeah i you know when i look back into like the early 90s i i just remember a lot of action movies that my little brother liked that i could have you know sort of cared less about right but this is one of the movies that he and i both sort of like gravitated to because it had enough action for him an action that i liked but also it has a lot of like melodrama and just like character development and stuff like that that i really enjoyed even as a kid yeah so yeah it's just it's a really fun movie to watch for those reasons you get a lot of it combined into one film yeah i mean it's a it's a at the end of the day it's a mother-son story where the stakes just happen to be the survival of the human race yeah Yeah. just a little little thing mm -hmm. there's also a theme about authority figures i think and uh james cameron was quoted to say you know that was him just having fun with an authority figure but there's a thematic point to that which is that as human beings we become terminators we learn how to have zero compassion terminator ultimately isn't about machines it's about our tendency to become machines i mean i can see where he's going with that thought well sure sarah sarah's a perfect example in the story where she goes after dyson she became a terminator herself and i think that's kind of what she was crying about is that what have i become and i became kind of my worst fear you know inhuman unfeeling mission-based and having the the t-1000 as a cop throughout most of the movie anyway like really drives that authority figure like to a head it's kind of aged well too if you ask me but you know (laughs) i mean yeah well obviously there's a nuclear war going on and uh humanity's tendency to destroy itself along with science's semi-blind attitude of progress for the sake of progress i mean like do you I assume that humanity's ultimate undoing in real life is going to be humanity itself, right? I think we can all agree that we're just going to destroy ourselves. Well, this pandemic is a perfect example with all these stupid anti-vaxxers. I mean, that's incredibly true, right? Yeah, we just like, we can't even save ourselves. (laughs) No, No, at this point, I I don't even think we deserve to to exist as a species. (laughs) I don't know if I'd go that far. Sorry, I've been having, I had like an hour of my time today was like, you know, going back and forth with these anti-vaxxers like on, you know, on social media. I don't know why I spent my calories to do that, but it was just like this reason, that reason, another reason, you know? And I'm just like, it's mind-boggling for me to think that someone can think their Google Foo is some sort of falsely equivalent to the entire world's, you know, medical and scientist community, you know, consensus on the worthiness of this vaccine, as well as you know, over 99% of the people that are dying from this from this pandemic at this point are unvaccinated. 
You know, it's just crazy for me to think that these people think they're just as smart. You know, it's like the worst is Dunning-Kruger effect in motion. And, you know, I used to think that, you know, fine, you know, self-cleaning oven, <laughs> these people are going <laughs> to die. Eventually, this thing is going to, you know, replicate and mutate at scale enough to where it's going to kill, you know, all these people off. But you know what? It might mutate and replicate into something that is kind of immune to any vaccine we might have. And that, that will kill me. That will kill potentially my family, my parents, everyone I love and care about. And so, no, fuck them. Well, and I think, I mean, just on that topic alone, because we already talked about like science's, you know, attitude toward progress for the sake of progress, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I think even the general public is okay with progress in science as long as it benefits them in a certain way, right? But if it's something they feel would destroy them instead of help them, like it really would, I mean, they they turn their back on it, right? So, I mean, like we have progress in cell phones and and, and electronics, but we have a vaccine in record time and people are like, no, there's no possible way that could happen. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. And it's fairly unique to America too, from what I'm reading. Yeah. I mean, I would think that. So, but yeah, I mean like ultimately like humans are going to destroy themselves. And I think that Terminator and Terminator 2 is a really good example of what could possibly happen. You know, like we create something that can become like sentient and then the first thing it does is decide to kill people. Yeah, the theme here is less about people not helping themselves and more about, you know, a message about AI and, and things like that, yeah. you know, but also about humanity's to, to tendency to destroy itself, you know, nuclear holocaust and all that. But at the end of the day, um, there's also about fate. You know, there's no fate but what we make for ourselves and what we're willing to do to prevent horrible things from happening or possibly happening and how we can lose our humanity to do that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, how do you feel about fate just in general as a concept? I don't. Yeah. I don't really either. I feel like, I feel like we put ourselves into a situation, right. And we're in control of our destinies to a certain extent. Right. But I like it when it's explored in film, you know, sometimes. And, but yeah, I mean, so like, this is really it. Like Sarah Connor is sort of like, she, she knows what's happening in the future and she can sort of control it in many ways. But I mean, she really can only control what she's allowed to. Yeah. And ultimately sacrifice yeah and i think this is something that we also explored in the first terminator right Mm -hmm. so like reese sort of sacrifices himself to save sarah and destroy a terminator right or try to and in this one it's sort of the opposite we have a terminator sacrificing itself to save humanity which is as well as a mother who's willing to sacrifice her own humanity as well as her own life to protect her son and i think at some point you know i i don't think it's far off even from that age of john Connor being willing to you know sacrifice a lot of things to make sure that he you know is able to become a, a leader of people mm-hmm. right so yeah a lot going on in this movie actually for for something that at its surface seems like a bunch of cars blowing up and you know helicopters crashing in the back of cars yeah. <laughs> so i've got some fun facts for you okay what are they so until the born ultimatum from 2007 and mad max fury road from 2015 this was the only sequel ever to win an academy award with the previous installment uh receiving none ergo it's the first first such film the only such film of the 20th century to do so oh my gosh i didn't realize this mm-hmm. so production took sufficiently long that edward furlong visibly aged during the shoot he's clearly much younger in the scene in the desert for example than in any other scene his voice began to break and had to had to be pitched one level in post-production. He had also grown so tall over those months that for one scene that was shot late in the production schedule, he had to stand in a hole in the ground in order to maintain continuity (laughs) and height difference with Linda Hamilton. (laughs) 
I mean, do you, was it, I guess it was noticeable enough that they would they wanted to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so much like the first film with the fake club tech noir, a female passerby actually wandered into the biker bars set thinking it was real despite walking past all the location trucks cameras and lights so seeing arnold schwarzenegger standing in the bar dressed only in in teeny little boxer shorts she wondered aloud what was going on only for schwarzenegger to reply that it was a male stripper night <laughs> I love so that. this also happened at the hospital which they uh, redressed to look like an asylum where the nearby townsfolk started picketing because they didn't want an asylum for the criminally insane in their neighborhood my god how real are these sets <laughs> <laughs> I mean James Cameron must hire the best people for production design Good he's Lord. a completionist <laughs> yes I don't know, but they, they quickly found out that it was a set. It didn't take them long, but they had signs and everything. <laughs> they, they took the time to pick it. <laughs> so according to director James Cameron, Linda Hamilton suffered permanent hearing loss in one of her ears during the elevator shootout because she did not replace her earplugs after removing them between takes on accident. Ooh, so she needs to go back and get more than a million dollars. So, for the highway helicopter shots, a camera car would be driving the Steadicam operator close to the helicopter to capture those close-up shots, but the camera crew absolutely refused to film it because of the high risk involved, right? Those helicopter blades are coming pretty close. So, director James Cameron filmed the shot himself twice, once with the camera (laughs) car driving behind the helicopter and once in front of it. Once again, securing the theme of sacrifice in his film. (laughs) (laughs) So because of the lack of script for Arnold, uh, I mean, he speaks way more than he did in the first movie. I mean, but he still doesn't speak that much compared to like John and, and Linda Hamilton's character, uh, Sarah. That's true. So his payment of 50, of that 15 million uh, jet comes out to about $21,429 per word. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fucking impressive. (laughs) For uh, my last one. Per tradition, after working with the notoriously perfectionist James Cameron, many crew members started wearing a t-shirt saying, Terminator 3, not with me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, ironically, I'm sure. But I don't know. Again, I mean, I I don't know if I'd like to work with him, but I'd like to at least visit his set. Or I guess if he's just happy to be filming something nearby, I might just wander into it anyway. So it doesn't matter. Exactly. I heard a story about the beginning of the shooting of Avatar and someone's like cell phone kept going off. So he finally took it from the crew, the crew member while they were shooting and nailed it to a wall. Jesus. <laughs> well, the CC's not shooting guns near people's faces. So he yeah, still has a voice to go. True. Those were fun. All right. Well, I think we have some questions to ask about Terminator 2, Judgment Day, like we do about every movie that we cover here on the Film Flamers. And we'll start with, is Terminator 2 a horror movie? Uh, Not as much as the first one. I would say principally this is a sci-fi action thriller that has definite, you know, some Venn diagram going on between it and horror. There's definitely slasher elements. There's definitely elevated gore. And certainly, you know, violent effects and things like that. There's definitely that slasher element, like I said, uh, with the T-1000 relentlessly pursuing them and some of the the action that takes place there. Um, But I want to say it's kind of flipped a little bit with this one. It's turned a little bit more into action. Yeah, I think you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, I think that the original Terminator is squarely a horror movie. I know some people would disagree with that. But um, 
I think more so than the, the sequel. So this one is definitely less of a horror film. I like the stylized violence in this, you know, and um, I think they could have done a little bit more with it, but there's some really neat kills. But for me, that's really the only thing that makes it remotely a horror movie. Yeah, it definitely has horror elements. And as things can be more than one thing. You know what I mean? Yes. I think course. someone commented on our Twitter post about the the first one and where we called it a horror classic. And someone was like, horror? Okay. You know, kind of yeah. facetiously. And like, that's not super helpful comment. You know, tell us what your argument is and we can have a conversation. That's right. Know? I mean, we use the word horrible, the portmanteau, we're horror adjacent, right? So, I mean, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's adjacent, at least. Were you scared while watching Terminator 2? I think when I was a kid, sure. Yeah. Certainly of that T-1000 and some of those death scenes, you know, I mean, straight horror scene itself was that, um, you know, subtle horror too, a little bit, or at least more subtle than the rest of the film was the stepmom, you know, Jeanette Goldstein killing the stepdad, you know, mm-hmm. and that's like straight up horror scene right there, you know, as well as a lot of those chase scenes where it's really just us, you know, especially in the steel mill, there's a lot of horror going on there as well. Um, that scared me, you know, as a kid. I was definitely tense watching it this time. I don't think you can watch this movie without being a little tense, you know, just because that's the effect it has on you. But um, I can't say this this time around that I was scared. That's for sure. Yeah, I don't think I was scared this time. I'm not even quite sure I was scared when I saw the theater as a kid, you know, and I would say I was on the edge of my seat, but I was standing up, you know, <laughs> but I really like I, I really find a lot of these like actiony moments in this movie very, very intense and um you know for a younger audience it's it's kind of hard to watch i would assume but yeah i mean i'm i I remember kind of getting scared or at least happy about some of the the kill scenes when i was a kid too so i mean it it just really does those so so right yeah okay so out of five stars what would you give terminator i give it five stars just like the first one it's it's nearly a perfectly constructed movie for me all the way through i don't have any major problems with it I also gave this one five stars, um, which is more than what I gave the original Terminator. I think this is a better movie, you know, and I just I have a lot of fun watching this movie. Right. I can see myself watching it again. I can't imagine why I haven't watched it more often, you know, over the past decade or so. But um it's just a really good movie and it brings back a lot of fond memories. So maybe there's some nostalgia boner in there, too. But like, it's just a really good, like almost perfect, if not perfect film. So how many times do you think you've seen this? I think I've probably seen this movie about like five or six times. Okay, but mostly maybe. as a kid. Mostly as a teenager. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we had it on VHS, for God's sakes. You <laughs> know what I mean? And I watched it a lot. So I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever even seen this movie on DVD. So by the time DVDs were a thing, I, I think I had stopped watching Terminator 2. But. So finally, and maybe most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Terminator 2? I think it's going to have to be Arnold Schwarzenegger this time around. I think I'm going to go with Robert Patrick. The light dusting did it for me. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the light dusting of chest hair. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Shimmering the background of that fake bar, that realistic fake bar. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is good looking in this movie as well, but uh, I think Robert Patrick is kind of hot in this movie. Yeah. I can Maybe see that. Maybe just have a thing for guys in uniform. <laughs> You do. Maybe just have a thing for authority figures. I'm like, okay, daddy, whatever. I've been bad. 
Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And as always, we'd like to know what you think about the movie. You can find us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. Or you can call our hotline at 972-666-7733. T-1000s are standing by. (laughs) (laughs) And also, we have two bonus episodes coming out for you this month. Talking about Dick Tracy and Darkman over on Patreon.com slash The Film Flamers. So head over there and check those out. That's right. And stay tuned for the end of this month where we celebrate our anniversary by releasing another How Takes episode. Well, Chris, I think it's about time for me to um, hasta la vista. Yes, and I think it's about time that I have a nightmare about um, nuclear holocaust and clinging to a fence. That's right. Sweet dreams.